Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. Okay, it's been a while since David and I just sat down to talk shop, and we thought we'd devote a few minutes at the head of this episode to do just that. So we think about David Huggins. Hmm. Now, you asked the question that he didn't really answer in a way that made everything so credible. So we've got problems with that story. Well, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, Gene, you stop and you think about it, right? In the paranormal world, there's data, but there's so little of it. Ultimately, really what you have at the end of the day are anecdotes. I mean, a lot of people would certainly say that about anything that I claimed on the show. And there's just no escaping that. So you look for things. You look for, you know, why would somebody make up stories about stuff? Why do people look for attention? Why do people want these things to happen to them? And people want to have these kinds of experiences, which to me, I can, I can understand the drive for that. But it's like anything else in life, Gene. You know, you want something and then when you get it, you don't, it's not what you expected. So in the case of David Huggins, you know, we, we asked him questions. Uh, did he convince me that he's had these experiences? There's some people that would say, you know, if he, if he thinks he had them, the story's right there because it's the trickster at work. Maybe it's the trickster. <laughs> well, of course, we can blame the trickster on everything. Everything is caused by the trickster. No, no, End no. story. No, no. I, well, you know, life is one big trick. Not to get all uh, philosophical on anyone. But what do we know about anything at this point? Seriously, I, I look at the, the world, I look at things going around in the world around me, and I think to myself, I, all the stuff I learned growing up, I mean, it just seems to play no role in helping me understand what's going on now. I, I, sometimes I really wonder about that. You know, you read a lot. You Anybody who's interested in just the nature of reality, right, you sort of, you, you, you take the time to notice the world around you. And... You take the time to realize just how complex of a universe this is. And, you know, like with David Huggins, I mean, did the man maybe have an experience or two or three, and then that grew into something else? Isn't that like a recurring theme that we see in this realm? People will have one or two experiences, and how badly does that mess up their mind? Really, people confronted with the paranormal or the anomalous, Experience. I mean, it, it's so hard for people who have never been there to understand just how much that can mess with your mind. And what comes after that is anybody's guess. Uh, th this could be the case of, uh, of Huggins. You know what? We don't know. And I recently said that on the forums, there was a, a thread about uh, what is a technologist and, uh, you know, making accusations against us. And every time someone says... Yeah, you know, these guys, they, they think they know what's going on. They're, they're making judgment calls. It's like, really? I, do we ever claim that we know what this is all about on this show? We ever actually made that claim? I don't know of any episode where we ever did that. I mean, some people are imagining episodes that we never did. <laughs> oh, man, our reputation precedes us. And, and, and then, of course, people say, oh, now they're talking about themselves again. Well... Yeah, we're just talking about our experiences, and it, you know, we keep coming back to that. That's what these shows are about, talking about one's thoughts, impressions, experiences, 
trying to make some sense of it. And it's kind of interesting to me that people would pick something like this and say, well, you know, you have to have an open mind and uh, critical thinking has its place, but you have to realize your own limitations. That's like, well, sure, isn't that just the story of living life in general? Don't people do that every day? And then something will come right out of left field and hit you. You didn't see it coming. And uh, now all of a sudden, everything you knew no longer makes any sense. You know, one thing that people are apt to do, something happens, and sometimes things just happen, you know? You get this crazy quilt of circumstances, and things happen. Things go wrong. But if it affects a lot of people or it gets a lot of attention, suddenly we have to devise a conspiracy. It isn't caused by just one of those things or the lone gunman or whatever. It's a grand conspiracy. There's no black and white. Everything is gray. That's right. Speaking of conspiracies... We have two guests today to talk about conspiracies, paranormal and political, and money conspiracies and everything else. Of course, Kenneth Thomas of Steam Shovel Press, who has been on the show before, a new guest, Stephen Beiser, who's a currency trader, and he'll talk about money conspiracies where they're taking your money away. What's going on here? <laughs> Sounds like everyday life. Someone's trying to take our money away. Okay. Or trying to rip you off. Well, that's everyday uh -huh. life. We'll have more Seven. of this and other stuff coming up on the Paracast. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the Paracast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels, you pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. 
Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Kenneth Thomas of Steam Shovel Press, Stephen Beiser, who deals in the currency trade, so therefore we hate him already, because <laughs> we have no currency. <laughs> No, we don't hate Stephen. I've known Stephen for many, many years, far too many years than I would care to admit here. And therefore, I'm stuck with him as a friend. That's how it goes. Seriously, before we got started, Ken, we were talking about why people look for conspiracies. So, for example, we have the Kennedy assassination, whether it was a conspiracy or not. World Trade Center, 9-11, even the moon landing, UFOs. We always look for not a simple explanation, but the one involving some kind of grand conspiracy. Why do we see that happening? Actually, that's not right. Uh, sometimes the conspiracy explanation is the simple explanation. But in a lot of times, I don't think really people go looking for it. It's just there, and people want to talk about it. And they don't want to uh, – it's just a very natural uh, response to anything to just, you know, to not look at something and say, well, that's just that. Let's stop thinking about it now. So I think it's just a natural desire to kind of fill in a vacuum with um, not just alternative points of view, but alternative kinds of research and uh, uh, different chunks of information that, you know, you're not getting from consensus reality. Well, consensus reality has gotten pretty confusing lately. I mean, just trying to get the day's news <laughs> is almost an impossibility. <laughs> Well, actually, I was noticing today somebody was giving me grief because I, I get three newspapers a day. And I was pointing out to them that the newspapers, of course, all look the same. And I could remember being outraged at Bruce Springsteen being on the cover of Time and Newsweek at the same time. But these days, if you want to try to do something with your television news watching and your channel flipping between MSNBC and CNN and Fox, you notice that they've got the commercials are all coordinated. You know, if you want to leave one channel because the commercial comes on, it doesn't matter because you go to another commercial. But you know that machinery is still in place all the time, and 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 it's you know supposedly generating all of this information. But there's a sameness about it all, you know, and it's uh, you still have to kind of dig and dig and dig for something else, something new, something different. Did you notice that Jesse Ventura, for instance, has a conspiracy theory show coming out? Jesse Ventura, really? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was on, actually, he was on, and he was on Larry King the other day. He says, I know this. Saying his usual stuff, it's a, it's actually a lot of 9-11 trooper hooey that I don't right, really believe. Right. And uh, he was on a panel, actually, with Arianna Huffington and uh, Ben Stein. And I'll tell you, it is a sad day when the only person <laughs> on a panel making any sense is Ben Stein, who was like a speechwriter for Nixon. I remember Ben Stein in the movie The Mask. Yeah. Okay, the Jim Carrey movie, the one that really, really got him a lot of attention. I still like that movie. Well, actually, movie-wise, no, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think oh, that's yes, really but where that's people the one remember, where I remember him. I remember him from Visine commercials. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and he makes sense. But you know what's even interesting? If you watch the news on CNN, and then you watch the news on Fox News, it's like they live in two separate realities. Really, it's like yeah. dealing with totally different universes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 my point. Yeah, there they are reality tunnels, is what Leary used to call them. And what you try to do is, is is fuse them together, right? I mean, it's the whole point of 
trying to pick up signals from the right and pick up signals from the left and try to get the full picture. But what I'm telling you is that you try to do that with your remote control, and you find yourself in the one reality tunnel that we're trapped in we can't get out of, and that is where they're selling you stuff all the time, where you're just a passive consumer in some transnational corporate uh, retail environment. Well, if people want to treat that as a, a conspiracy, as if it were some some kind of a thing where it was contrived, and it's like, no, this is the... Uh, Chomsky would say that's not a conspiracy theory. It's an institutional analysis. <laughs> You know, it's just like this is what's actually going on, and if you want to yeah. live in denial, okay, you're playing along with the program. Kudos to you. Here's a food pellet. You know, go have fun. Well, this is true too. But you know, uh, Chomsky. What did Chomsky do? He developed espionage software at MIT. And if you uh, try to press him about, you know, his real contacts to uh, the establishment, he will claim that he's just alienated labor like anybody else, but of course he's like this great celebrated uh, social critic on the left, and he's not really, so he's, he's kind of, you know, putting out a bit of a story himself. Everybody's got a story, see that we're just, and this is, uh, we're, we're in the preamble, we're just talking about, you know, even in the paranormal realm, everybody's got a story, yeah. and some people have stuff to back the story up, some people don't have stuff to back the story up, there's, you've got data, you've got opinion. Everybody's got a story, and this is like what humans are. We're these walk, walking, talking story machines living some version of our story that's being bombarded with details from other stories. And that's like, you know, life in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, yeah, but, you know, if you're into this kind of thing, and what mm -hmm. I call it is parapolitics. What I do is I study and I write about parapolitics. You know, I eschew right. this whole idea that it's conspiracy theory. You're, the job, if you really think you're going after something more truthful than just, you know, whatever everybody else believes, so you're just, you know, absorbing whatever the media is putting out, is this triangulation of research. So you kind of look for more and more material and you put it up in the little bulletin board of your mind and you, you know, you, you cluster different kinds of information. And when enough of that seems consistent, then you're closer than the truth than you otherwise would be. Triangulation. Um, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Right, yeah, triangulation of research, right. It's a, they take the metaphor from the Kennedy assassination, the triangulation of crossfire. <laughs> Uh-oh. There we go already. Um, I'm going to challenge Jesse Ventura to a smackdown. Oh, you know, nice. He's on, he, one of the things he says on, the, on, on Larry King, he was calling for uh, to reinstitute the draft, and he was calling for a, a tax to pay for the war. And, you know, he really is kind of a, 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 <sighs> a right-wing populist boob for the most part. And... This conspiracy theory show, he's going to do seven episodes, and he said on the show, they're not going to go back before 10 years, you know. So they're not going to have me on the show because they're not going to talk about JFK. So they're not going to talk about RFK, MLK, Iran-Contra, the promise software, the inflow scandal, anything but, of course, 9-11 trufarism. So basically it's all about 9-11. That's the only conspiracy that you have. Well, well, actually, his first one is going to be about HARP. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm saying let's get into the ring. We don't have to fight, but we'll just, you know, throw out a theory and we'll see who, who knows more about what. Because, you know, Ventura wants to present himself as a guy who has insider knowledge and some guy who's outraged that, you know, Mattis Hell he's not going to take it anymore because George Bush, he knows, personally flew the plane into one of the trade towers, you know. Uh, oh, boy. And I don't put out that persona, you know. I'm like this researcher guy, academic, and uh, uh, I'd like to have a civilized smackdown with <laughs> Jesse Ventura. At this point, is the term civilized, in terms of any kind of debate in the media, it, it seems like 
civilized isn't exciting enough so people don't pay attention so let's get things bloody because if it bleeds it leads yeah yeah, yeah, about right. And and what you get, of course, in the media, just you know, I mean, Jesse Ventura is just a minor character when you think of all the silly people in the media. You know, the Glenn Becks and the Sarah Palins and the <laughs> Rachel Meadows and all these people are caricatures of actual, you know, people who really discuss anything important. Well, the unfortunate well, thing here I see though is a lot of people will take a Sean Hannity or. A Glenn Beck, especially Glenn Beck, he's become a phenomenon now, or Sarah Palin, and these are the people who know everything. They're the ones to follow. And that's even the craziest thing in the world because they are entertainers. It would be funny if we didn't suffer through eight years of George Bush, you know, yeah, and elevate, yeah. elevate a certain amount of stupidity to a certain amount of power. Yeah, this is irony gone a little too hot. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask something. It's just Stephen Beiser here. Ken, apropos of Gene's initial question about why why we are or aren't looking for conspiracies, isn't it the fact that we feel that everything is being manipulated and we're not sure in many cases how much and who are doing the manipulation. I mean, when Glenn Beck states things that are categorically incorrect, factually incorrect, citing a news story, and in fact, it never happened. And he gets that much airtime, and 30% of the population then believes that that non-existent news story, in fact, occurred. If you want a great example, just look at the Tiger Woods thing of the past several days. Initially, all of the broadcast companies and the cable all announced that he was in a serious accident and that he was hospitalized. We don't know how bad it is. And, and, and we don't know if he'll ever golf again. Maybe, maybe not live. And, and in reality, you know, none of that came to be true, and because it's Tiger Woods, ultimately uh, everyone did digging and came up with their own twist of what really happened, but in reality, the guy had some scratches and it banged up an Escalade and did $3,000 worth of damage to a tree and a hydrant. But when those initial reports came in the first couple of hours, it sounded as if someone was on the verge of death, a great athlete had been killed in an accident or comatose or, or something very, very terrible. So when we, when we talk about other things that are much more difficult to ferret out, doesn't it kind of stand to reason that, that people begin to spin it in, in a dozen different directions and sometimes years later we're still not sure what really happened? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Steve. Uh, people aren't actually even tuning in to the likes of Glenn Beck. And I don't want to just com completely stab the, the right on this, Chris Matthews or, or some of the other. They don't really turn tune into those things for news reports anymore. They turn in to those things for reaffirmation of whatever little reality tunnel that right. they have. You know? I mean, that, the, the, the teabag movement or the people that, that watch Fox Network. And uh, the Tiger Woods story, uh, I sense that that, that uh, the sharks started swimming around there because they sensed a celebrity scandal. When the wife starts coming at somebody with a with a golf clubs, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, all of that. You, you know, kind of, <laughs> but but you know, you get other things like uh, look at the political mileage they got out of the fact that uh, Obama has taken so long to make a supposedly taken so long to take to make a decision about the uh, escalation in Afghanistan. 
none of the generals were asking for any kind of decision before the beginning of next year. You know, so he, sure. he was not under any real pressure, but uh, Fox and those people just showed, you know, used it to demonstrate what a waffler he was, how he can't make a decision, and and on and on and on. When when Dick Cheney commented that Obama's uh, speech lacked any real gumption and that he took all this time to actually think about it. How unthinkable was that during the Cheney-Bush years? And Cheney, in his mind, feels that the guy just couldn't come to a conclusion. No, what he was doing is he was trying to make the best decision possible, something that never failed to happen during the eight years of Bush Cheney. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I don't think that uh, the last seven years of failure in Afghanistan and Iraq have anything to do with Obama. And, and to make any judgment really about Obama in less than a couple of years is really unfair. Then maybe because I, I feel strongly in the, in the positive sense about Obama's intentions, but more to the point, it would just be a simple sense of fairness to allow somebody taking over some really god-awful situations and trying to get them right side up is going to take time regardless of who you are. And, and even if you were biblical, uh, it wouldn't have happen uh, any more magically than uh, several years to undo all that's been done. You know, well, here's the thing. People have to get to the point where they realize that they can't pin everything on one person and one person's actions. You, you have these figureheads that are thrown around and we're supposed to put all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our trust. And if, they, if that one person lets you down, okay, then it's the big letdown. To, to look at reality and from, from that perspective is to be ignorant of the way that reality, I think, more really works. I mean, you know, this whole idea that Obama's going to come in and sweep up eight years of disaster. I thought to myself, well, he's, you know, Obama wants to win this and come in and inherit what? I mean, who wants to look forward to even trying to fix that? Because it's almost, I mean, from my point of view, looking at the situation, it's almost like this was not even fixable. You know, you look at what's happened in the Middle East and, and here we are, the Paracast about politics, the one we said we'd never do. Um, <laughs> shit. Well, it's not. It's parapolitics, dude. It's not just right, Okay. All right. Now you're right. <laughs> it's also the case of expectations. What are your expectations? Do you well, think sure. that one guy is going to come in there, he can change the system overnight? It doesn't well, work that way. The bottom line is that if we're going to be honest about our whatever version of our reality tunnel we're choosing to exercise and filter the world through, I think we have to take that step of sort of opening our eyes up and really looking at things in a way that I, I think certainly as, Amer as Americans, four of us on the show are Americans, the way that we've been conditioned to sort of perceive everything that goes around us is in many ways, we, you know, we, we think we're worldly, but in many ways I think we're very provincial. And having grown up Overseas, I got a real sort of a taste of how that really works. The perception that we have of ourselves here and then uh, the perception that the rest of the world has of us and the role that we play. And it's kind of interesting because, for example, the Paracast reaches a fairly substantial audience in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. And so a number of people from those countries participate in our forums, communicate uh, with us directly. I find it very, very informative and very useful to get that perspective directly from people from other countries on how we're perceived. And this is something that certainly the American media 
spends very little time on. You know, it's basically USA number one, how we perceive the world. Meanwhile, you know, people who live on the Internet understand it's a world where there are complexities that go beyond, uh, you know, sort of the basic uh, drumbeat of nationalism and and the the mentality that has existed for for how long that the technology is now starting to challenge. It's it's an interesting time to be alive. Hey neighbors, the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Kenneth Thomas of Steam Shuffle Press. If you go to steamshufflepress.com, you'll learn more. And Stephen Beiser, he's a currency trader, sells gold and silver, by the way, at goldbug.com. Let's pick up. Who had to comment before? I forgot to. <laughs> That's okay. No, no, you were talking about it. Is, it is interesting in the, the technological environment that we live in that uh, here we are kind of discussing the standard ways that uh, we've been receiving uh, information from the media when, mm -hmm. in fact, we live in a world where any teenager has worldwide broadcast power. That's right. You know? and, and that's a completely different world than the world that's being generated by the people who are still living in these old models where you had old graybeard at 5 o'clock at night telling him the news. But we still have the media personality, and we have the this thing about cult of personality that certainly uh, is nothing new. Is one of the defining characteristics of human civilization. The charismatic people who cry for attention and get it because they're trying. We still seem to have, that seems to be a fairly basic human mechanism. There's no way around that. It would be a nice thing to have leaders that you like and that you believe yeah. in. I could see why people want that. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you don't get that very often. And I think, and I do think that a lot of the JFK assassination research effort, that community is fueled by people who are still in that kind of cult of personality uh, with JFK. And so I think those passions can, and, and it has led to a lot of research and a lot of uh, really uh, kind of deeper understanding of um, the world operations by knowing these things about JFK and others because so many people are so kind of passionately connected to leaders that they perceive of as being moderately progressive. I'm not saying that that's who JFK was, but that's the way he's perceived. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't well, know, there are situations like, you know, like you know, for instance, the most promising thing that we've seen recently were all the uh, last June, June 12, actually, on my birthday, the one I shared with George Bush the first, the, all of the uh, protests and the rioting against the Mad Militia of Iran. I think that came about uh, by two major things, one of them being Obama's speech in Cairo, where he finally acknowledged that uh, U.S. involvement in the overthrow of Mossadegh. 
and the other being the changes in Iraq since the war. So one of them is an Obama thing, and one of them is a Bush, Bush thing, and both of that led to inspirations that, I mean, who knew? Who really knew? I mean, we knew that Iran had kind of a secularized population, but who knew that we could inspire them to rioting to the point where, you know, they almost toppled that place. So, but unfortunately, not 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 quite. <laughs> Well, and this is the thing about, you know, people want to talk about conspiracy theories and, and again, they sort of, they put this dark tinge on it. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that there is, it's almost as if you have the typical business situation where you've got the set of the books that the IRS sees, you know, the public books, then you've got the private books, which is, uh, the you know, the reality of the transactions. And yet, and then there's yet this third thing, which is who's holding the cash, and, and it's almost as if every aspect of our reality reflects that kind of a structure. You know, you have this outer shell, this facade of this is what, what is. This is the way things are. Then you peek underneath, and then this is the whole thing about, you know, don't look. You, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. But then it's, yet there's... Well, that's there's, true. You don't want to know how it's made. No, I mean, no but all, then it's like there's this other third layer and maybe I'm, you know, I'm just trying now to sort of break out of this duality, this polar duality. I want a tripolar duality. You know, the the third layer, the third possibility. Well, it seems like in everything about you know, all of the topics we've ever discussed on this show, where uh, again, there's this a perception that either you had an experience or you didn't. And often we take the position where you know there's no in between. But yeah, well, you know what? Maybe there is this huge in between. The world is not a digital place where you can quantize down to a certain number of bits, but the world is an analog place, whereas you, you keep probing deeper and deeper. The organization seems to be more and more complex. It doesn't get simpler and simpler. And, and it seems like in any aspect of the world that we look at, we look at the way that money works in the world. You want to talk about you know, crazy magic that has like no basis in anything that seems to be real. Money and... Yeah. Well, He's no. all about the gold. <laughs> well, and then there's the gold. Well, right. Yeah, there you go. Gold, right? Gold What's is real, right? Gold? I mean, I get this all the time, actually, from conspiracy people that, uh, you know, Kennedy, of course, was killed because he was going to oppose the Federal Reserve, which isn't true, but people really believe that. And we've been off the gold standard since, like, 1934. I mean, money, of, of all things out there, money is consensus reality. Absolutely. American GIs use cigarettes as money. You know, what you agree to call money is money. A lot of these guys are in the, the, uh, into conspiracies and stuff. We want to believe that the great evil in the world is the Federal Reserve. I uh, think that's just totally wrong and that we need to, everything needs to be backed up by gold. And, of course, Steve's the expert on this. Huh? Well, if I may, uh, in regards to the gold, I mean, a store of value, certainly since we have recorded civilization, essentially. And the fact that we had to move away from the gold standard because we wanted to turn the printing press on and let it run literally way beyond anything that it was intended to have done during, for example, Vietnam. And, and really it was Nixon who totally detached gold from the monetary system. Uh, there were several junctures where the dollars printed had to have some relationship to the gold that we actually or theoretically did hold, theoretically or actually in places like Fort Knox. Today, we have no idea if there is any gold at Fort Knox. There's the appearance that there is a lot of gold there, but we don't know that. And I think Ken Thomas might have 
something to say in that regard, but there's certainly no quantification of how much gold is or is not there. And we do know that the number of dollars that have been printed bears no relationship to the amount of gold, regardless of what that number would be, that we might or might not have. So it, it, it's kind of, if you... You know, if you go back to things as mundane as Gresham's law about good money and bad money, the good money seems to always be gold and silver. And the bad money always seems to be eh, kind of paper, maybe clad coinage. The silver coinage was all taken out during the 60s prior to yeah, 19... This is, yeah. this is actually why people believe that JFK was killed by the Federal Reserve, because he started issuing uh, notes that, uh, smaller notes that were meant to retire, silver certificates that were meant to retire because the value of the silver in the coins uh, was uh, more than the coin was worth. And, and so, so he, money was issued, and, they, and they'll hold up these notes and say it doesn't have the Federal Reserve on it. It was just notes to uh, help retire uh, the silver connections. It was a movement more toward fiat money than than away from it. That certainly is true, and, and just to, to, to kind of add to that point, the coinage, you know, at the height when the Hunt brothers ran the price of silver up, or the market that they they were involved in ran the price of silver to $50.50 per ounce at the, in 1980, during that period, if you had four silver quarters, you, you, you had 20 bucks. You had 20 bucks that you could have cashed in. And those silver certificates that you refer to were actually cashable at the Federal Reserve for a quantity of silver per silver certificate. But then it became impossible for the government to redeem it for silver. So they set an artificial cutoff date, and then your silver certificate was no longer backed by silver. And that was true of the gold certificates of the 30s. And, and you know, that's, yeah, fiat well, money yeah, that, is that exactly was it. That was basically the end of the process that began in 34, totally removing yes. us from anything that's right. onto actual things of value. Right. Roosevelt stopped all of the minting of gold coinage. The last the last gold coinage that we minted until more recently when the government now will sell you, you know, how nice, uh, an ounce of gold, a, a, a gold eagle, but you'll pay $1,200 or $1,300 today for that gold eagle uh, that uh, was $35 per ounce back then, you know, and and when Roosevelt in 1933 stopped all that minting of gold, he also confiscated everyone's gold. You had to turn in your gold. You were an outlaw if you didn't turn your gold coins in. And that was, you know, that's a scary concept in and of itself, that the government could issue that kind of an edict. And uh, in fact, uh, you uh, became an outlaw if you hoarded any gold. You know, it's not beyond our thinking to, to believe that that could possibly happen again. And I wonder, Steve, is it, is it really because of the scarcity of those elements, you know, gold and silver, or is it just really an agreement that we, I, I know, for instance, that diamonds are not as valuable as people make them out to be. That there's no, that's, that, well, that's, that's certainly true. But you yeah, know, in, in reality, the, the gold itself, we only mine perhaps 2,500 tons in a year. 
in the the history of mankind uh, this is this is a government statistic not just our government but it, it it's kind of as you say if you triangulate you you look at other you know somewhat uh, believable sources there's there's only 163,000 tons of gold above the earth right now that we know of and that's really a minuscule if you if you do all the math break it down to ounces and you you even take it at two thousand dollars an ounce which uh, today's market is uh, somewhere uh, in excess of twelve hundred dollars an ounce but if you took two thousand dollars as a base number and you do all the math you find out that it only represents about one percent of the total currency that's circulating so gold is kind of a you know it's, it's, it is very scarce it, it will be more scarce because we're fighting all these wars and we're we're doing all this stuff that costs money and we don't have it and we're deficit spending and what was once an unthinkable uh, deficit like a trillion dollars is like a, a couple of months, maybe a month, you know, to, to run a trillion dollar deficit. And, and you know, I mean, you, you look at, you know, take it, you know, what, what used to be the almanac or go on the Internet and look at what the gross national product was when we were kids and and look at it, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later. And it's it's frightening. I mean, the, the GMP of 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated, is literally a very small fraction of what we're spending on the war alone, let alone the rest of, uh, of our expenditures. It sounds like all smoke and mirrors. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And so in answer to, to your original question, yeah, it is the scarcity, but it's, it's also the, the, the prospect that when we really look at the money supply and we really look at the amount of gold, you know, there's almost no limit on how high gold would go if not for political and, and you know, and, and playing to the things that you're very expert in, Ken, in, in terms of conspiracy. You know, all the governments are, are, are scared out of their shoes, politely, in thinking that people might begin to realize that all of these currencies are, are fiat currency at, at whatever level you want to call it, you know, kind of near worthless is, is the way that most paper money really is. It might take another 20, 30, 40 years for people to catch up to that and to see it for what it is. But, you know, this last run, this last recession slash almost depression, you know, gives us an idea of how bad things could be. I mean, you, all you have to do is go back to last March and, and realize what, you know, what was going on with housing and what was going on, you know, and, and even today. I mean, the, the, the numbers, one-fourth of everybody is upside down in the house that they're living. You know, and and I don't know, but I mean, for those of us that grew up in the 50s and 60s, you know, a house was, you know, hey, it's always going to be worth a bit more every year. For the next 50, 100 years, it's going to be worth something more. There was always an uptrend, but you didn't have the kind of crazy curves where people were flipping homes in a year or two and, like, doubling their money. The fact that you talk about consensus reality, Ken, the fact that people thought that was basically going to go on forever, I, I always looked at that and thought, well, that there's mass psychosis if you've ever seen it. <laughs> you know, that, that this can somehow go on forever and that people were looking at this thinking, this is a good thing. And, and I thought to myself, so I'm not a parent, but do parents who have kids want their kids to be facing the $10 million starter home? 
<laughs> is that something to aspire to? And well, I guess if you're making a hundred million dollars a year, who cares? Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. So, what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is James Carrion, International Director of the Mutual UFO Network. You are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Kenneth Thomas, and you can find out more of the things he does at steamshovelpress.com. That's his publication. Stephen Beiser, goldbug.com. That's G-O-L-D-B-U-G-G. We couldn't get it with one G, he says, so we had to get it with two Gs. He's a currency <laughs> trader. And we're looking into the incredible world of conspiracy theories, but now taking it to the reality, the frightening reality, of the fact that maybe we're living on smoke and mirrors that all this money stuff we have now it's all smoke and mirrors it has no reality i mean one of the people who was on a show two three years ago tom hartman he's a talk show host a progressive talk show host he was talking about the fact that some of these financial schemes they were working on on wall street like derivatives and stuff like that would increase or would involve trading of $900 trillion, which is many, many times what all the wealth in the world is worth. Talk about smoke and mirrors. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. There's another uh, famous event that happened, again, getting back to the Kennedy assassination. On the day Kennedy was shot, there's something called the Great Salad Oil Swindle in which um, American Express claimed that it had all of this salad oil in uh, storage somewhere, you know, ton tanks and tanks of it, and were actually taking loans against it. And the day that Kennedy was shot, uh, it was exposed that they didn't have the salad oil in the first place. So there was this uh, short-selling spree and uh, all kinds of financial manipulations that were happening right after the assassination. The same pattern, that same pattern actually dogged Lyndon Johnson, who was going to probably be dropped from the 1964 ticket because of the scandal that he was involved with with a guy named Billy Solestes, who did the same thing on the cotton market. And supposedly this also happened after 9-11, short-selling sprees uh, that, you know, once a, once a great disaster like that uh, happens, the, they can like, hide behind it and, and make an enormous amount of money. And actually, the guy that made his first millions off of the salad oil swindle was Warren Buffett. That's when Warren Buffett came on the scene. Okay. Really? Of course, Warren Buffett brought us the gecko because his company, <laughs> Berkshire Hathaway, owns Geico. Yeah. But, you know, going but back to the... People see this happening all the time. You know, people uh, see this, you know, all this stuff that's not connected to anything uh, real except manipulating financial markets. And it's a small wonder that, you know, uh, poorer people who have a hard time buying a house in the first place think that they can get on the, in on the game, uh, you know, not realizing, of course, that they're dealing with... <laughs> 
bankers who are much better at this game than they're ever going to be. Well, you know, I was thinking about the Kennedy assassination, though, that you raised before, and the fact there may have been a financial thing involved. Of course, we look at the really tragic conspiracy theory here. If Johnson's going to be dropped from the ticket, Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas. Johnson is a powerful politician who owns Texas pretty much at that particular point in time politically. Okay, so he's the guy. That's the theory. Well, also there's a gold thing going on here. Um, I'm, I'm just beginning having discussions with a writing partner about doing a book on LBJ next year. Uh, and I, maybe Steve knows something about it. Uh, I'm just beginning to study, but there's something about moving gold transfers in Johnson's past that also kind of affect all these scandals that he was involved in. Yeah, well, I actually do, and it it actually ties very strongly. If you look at the legislation, and if you're going to be investigating for a book, you want to look at the legislation that Johnson, who had really been a very powerful figure and had a lot of clout, had initiated a lot of legislation prior to his becoming the vice president. And a lot of that legislation was passed during Kennedy's administration. And a lot of it was to kind of detach us further and further from the gold that we allegedly had. And Johnson had a very, very strong base of support among Texas oil. And as a Democrat, that might seem incongruent, except for the fact that uh, he was, in fact, involved in helping the oil industry to manipulate uh, the commodities market and ultimately the gold market. And when you do the research, I'm sure, Ken, that you'll find that some of this legislation it would make someone scratch their head if you were looking at it in, a, in very objective terms. Basically, and you would wonder. To move the government of further and further away from its own gold supply in order to enhance the value held privately by Johnson and his crony? Well, to, to allow for the manipulation of prices. If you look at, if you look back to that point in time, you know, barrels of oil were a few bucks a barrel. And the idea was that if you can create, well, if you can inflate the value of money, uh, you can get a lot more for your oil, you can get a lot more for the gold, you can get a lot more for everything if you remove that as a basis for the money. And that would, that would play very strongly to people that, that were commodity rich and wanted to see the prices go up. And, you know, there was relatively little inflation during the 50s, if you recall, during Eisenhower's years. Inflation was almost non-existent. It really wasn't until the 60s and 70s that, that the term inflation got into our vocabulary. And of course, during the Carter years, you saw the result of the 15 prior years and, and what happened when interest rates went to high double digits, relatively high double digits, when you, if you, if you bought a CD in the, in the mid late seventies, you're getting 17%, 16% on a CD, you know, when today's interest is, you know, a lot closer to zero. So you really, you really have to wonder how, how that hyperinflation, how that was generated and, and what, what series of events caused that to, to happen. And, and yeah, if you go back to that period of Johnson, Johnson had a lot of, a lot to do with, with us 
being in that position, I really believe that it started during Kennedy Johnson. Yeah, and, well, and, it's, certainly, and, it's certainly true that, I mean, there are people like Clint Murchison and other oil, uh, Tom Slick, actually Ron Coleman wrote a book on Tom Slick. These oil magnates were all in on planning meetings for the assassination. You know, that's a, that's a well-known thing. But I think, actually, you know, Johnson's own connections to uh, to gold are, are not, you know, in, in a topic that's pretty much well-mined. It's surprising to me that uh, that not not enough has been done about Johnson, um, yeah. particularly considering you know how ruthless he was because he really was on the verge of uh, being exposed by his connection to Billy Solestes and uh, mysteriously one of the investigators of the Billy Solestes scandal was was killed uh, by this guy Mac Wallace whose fingerprint was later established to be at the book depository a, a guy who was also suspected of killing one of Johnson's uh, sister's boyfriends. You know, so basically a hired killer for Johnson. Hmm. I've always been kind of resistant to the idea that Johnson was behind the assassination. I think he was a beneficiary and he was there somewhere. But uh, the more you look at it, the more interesting it becomes, you know. Well, you know, he could have also said, I don't want to know how you do it. I don't want to be connected to it. But certainly it'd be nice if he wasn't here and I could run free and clear in 1964. But looking further at Johnson's history, do you think when he decided that to expand the Vietnam War, which of course enriches the military industrial complex because they're making more war materials, do you think that he just quit because it did him in or because he was going to be exposed? Why did he decide not to run for a term in 1968? Uh, well, it's interesting if you actually see uh, pictures of Johnson in his later years. He's got long hair. It's almost as if he's got hippified by the whole uh, war movement and everything that happened there. But, yeah, he remember he signed an executive order that reversed JFK's beginnings of trying to de-escalate the war in Vietnam. In other words, Kennedy issued an executive order that said they were going to reduce the number of advisors there, and that got that was the first thing Johnson did when he got in office was to reverse that. Now, there's two ways actually of reading that. I mean, once your president has been assassinated, you don't want anywhere on the world stage to appear weak at all. So it might have been that. But uh, it certainly was, you know, the demonstration of history that thereafter we got involved in this big protracted thing that benefited only Bell Helicopter and the other defense contractors. I just, in fact, I just got finished doing a, uh, a talk about this in Vegas about the guy that uh, Jim Garrison thought was the grassy knoll shooter who he was convinced was in the employ of the military industrial complex. This guy, Fred Crisman, who was uh, kind of famous in the UFO world as being one of the witnesses to the Maury Island case in 1947. But that was very much what Garrison's case was all about. This We call it the MIC, military industrial complex. And, of course, all that turned out to be fairly prescient in terms of the way it seems the world has played out. Yeah, what actually was going on with Kennedy, when Kennedy, the last speech that Kennedy gave was about the TFX tactical fighter, which was a defense contract that was supposed to go to Boeing uh, in Seattle. But instead, very controversially, Kennedy assigned it to General Dynamics. And Garrison's case, remember the Stone movie is about Garrison. Garrison was making the case that the guy who shot Kennedy, not the Clay Shaw guy who was the toehold on the conspiracy, but the guy who pulled the trigger from the grassy knoll, was working for Boeing. So that Kennedy is actually the victim of this internecine warfare between these uh, transnational uh, war profiteering uh, aerospace firms, Boeing and General Dynamics. How do you think people would respond? This is, I guess this comes back to the big question we always 
find ourselves in, certainly in talking about UFO stuff, which is disclosure. So there's some small number of people who basically want to know the truth about what's going on. But do you think the masses at this point either A, could handle, or B, even care about what, what transpired in those years? I mean, I, I wonder about this because you, you, I, you just look at the way that people deal with history. And, and here we are, it's uh, 2009, you know, we're, we're, we're so many years away, just even from the 9-11 incident, and there's a certain group of people who obviously deeply affected by that day, anybody who was in New York City who saw it, you know, uh, is still probably trying to deal with the, the trauma of, of witnessing that terrible event. But there's also, you know, you, you speak to some younger people, there's a sense of apathy about it. Like, there's a sense of apathy about so many things, and... I, I just wonder if at this point, you want to talk about the conspir the great conspiracy theories, television as the apathy programmer. What do you think? I mean, can we get a, a good conspiracy theory going there? I mean, because that... Well, okay, well, remember, you know, as we discussed earlier, television is passe. Everybody is on the Internet, and, they, and, they, and they're certainly not, particularly in this age of social networking with Facebook, they're certainly not apathetic about their own image. And about uh, being cute with each other on on the screen. And uh, actually, uh, over Thanksgiving, I was, I was watching a classic old film clip of William William S. Burroughs. Right? You know Burroughs. Of course. He does this great Thanksgiving prayer, and the, the last thing. Oh, is, I love thank, that. Yeah. Is, thank you for the betrayal of the last best dreams of mankind. And he's referring to the space program, which yeah. is what uh, you know, which what Kennedy represented for so many people. And so that whole spirit was really kind of crushed because we are not the culture that uh, Kennedy was promising us to be in the 60s because he was killed and everybody thereafter was just totally destroyed in favor of this warmongering uh, global uh, disaster that we have instead of being spacefaring and hopeful and exploratory and that kind of thing. So I, there, I think there's a, you're right, there's a big sense yeah. of apathy there. But at the same time, you know, even though we didn't do what we, we should have been doing in, in space as quickly, you know, although it's still an ongoing thing, the Internet did develop, you know, and everybody that was affected by the assassination, the baby boomers, all kind of took that over. And uh, up until almost, and it's been a very exciting time and a very interesting kind of technology up until very recently because it's become so, you know, commercialized and uh, manipulated like everything else. So, yeah, well, there, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, there's one scene, you know, you, uh, somebody brought up uh, the movie JFK from Oliver Stone. There's another Oliver Stone movie I, I absolutely love, Nixon. Just a, you know, just a, and there's this one scene in there. My, my that, great aunt is in that movie, you know. What? Stop, really? Yeah, my great aunt is Helen Gahagan, the pink lady, the woman who ran against Nixon for a uh, Senate seat in 1950. She was yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Coined the term Tricky Dick. My great aunt Helen. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, there's some serendipity for you. But you know there, what? I was also, I was watching Frost Nixon, you know, the Ron Howard movie the other day. Fabulous. And, yeah, and the portrayal of Nixon there was very similar to Anthony Hopkins in that it was sympathetic. Not in the sense that, well, this guy was actually a great accomplished statesman and we should have respect for him, but that he was a seedy little bastard, kind of like the same little seedy bastard that's maybe inside every one of us. Hmm. No, but I, I just I have to mention there is this one scene in Nixon that's always stuck with me um, because I think it really reflects what ended up happening. He's where Hopkins is standing in front of this portrait, that portrait of Nixon in the White House, and he's talking to it. And he says, when they look at you, they see who they want to be. When they look at me, they see who they are. Exactly. Yes. It's, it's a really great, powerful scene. And 
and and it seems like this is where we're stuck as a species almost we have these the, this great vision of who we we want to be what we want to be and then there is this huge disconnect between that and the day-to-day reality of you know animals in clothing playing out a game of survival and ultimately it all coming back to that and that ends up being the ultimate truth of everything that really you know it is such capable of such noble greatness but ultimately you, know, you step back and you look at the wars and the greed and um and the negativity i guess there are some people who would who are better with words would couch this in a more philosophically uh eloquent way but it's almost as if in order for there to be any sort of sense of nobility and greatness there has to be this bounding balancing principle of just utter base disgusting violent behavior and i mean we see this in so many different aspects of our culture we see this in so many different aspects of and pick any field of study any field of interest and no matter you know the most beneficial noble thing you know the cure for cancer and you see backstabbing going on and politics and people with their little petty agendas I mean, we won't even talk about like the paranormal realm because, man, yeah, I swear, <laughs> we'll have more of that in part two, ladies and gentlemen. You know, yeah, that's a phenomenon that I call conspiracy as usual. You know, <laughs> that's generally considered business as usual, and it's yeah. true. And it's it's true. It's part of the reason, for instance, why the study of parapolitics never gains any ground in academia, uh, because every one of those history departments has internecine warfare between its members, and they're all going to try to make the other look foolish, so you know, yep. so that they get tenure and the other guy doesn't. And there's certain topics. Oh, it's only when somebody successfully navigates that whole thing and gets tenure, like John Mack did, and I think this guy uh, Setzer, James Setzer, does, when they get tenure and they can't fire them anymore, they can finally get around to talking about things that are, are, are truthful and meaningful and penetrate, you know, the reality of, of things. And up until that point, it's all just, you know, phony, discursive. Uh, arguments when we spend so much money on on intelligence on on information gathering and 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 when there's there are so many labels within the government for intelligence and yet fort hood there were so many different warning signs that people are now reviewing and wondering why no one put it together no one knew that this psychiatrist needed psychiatric evaluation why the psychiatrist who had been evaluated but people that evaluated him and knew that there was a problem were reluctant to state the gravity of the problem and why over a period of several years nobody put it together until he takes so many innocent lives and and such a travesty and, and such a sad thing and all all within the government purview, the, within the on a government property. How how does that how does that come to be in what should be such a transparent situation of somebody that's treating people that are coming back from war and have various traumas? How do we have someone treating people and be that far? from okay you know steve we'll explore that in part two we have kenneth thomas 
of Steam Shovel Press. Go to steamshovelpress.com to learn more. Stephen Beiser, a currency trader. Go to goldbug.com. That's two Gs, goldbug.com. We'll explore more about the world of conspiracy theories, power politics, and more on the other side of the Paracast. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yebby. On part two with Kenneth Thomas of Steam Shovel Press and currency trader Stephen Beiser, we've been talking about different types of conspiracy theories, financial conspiracies, about, of course, the Kennedy assassination and the various connections there. Of course, then we could look into another set of conspiracy theories. Another person involved very much in the gold industry, George W. Bush. We have 9-11, which triggered wars in Iraq, Afghanistan. Any conspiracies involved in that? What do you think, Kenneth? Oh, no, I certainly see conspiracies there. I can see, I see conspiracies everywhere, right? I'm a crazy conspiracy man. I think what you, what you have with 9-11... And I, and I get in all kinds of trouble with people. I was always lynched once when I insisted that, yes, I do believe a plane actually hit the Pentagon. But I do believe, uh, as was as Norman Panetta uh, testified to Congress, that these were planes that were flown by uh, Middle Eastern terrorists. But as it was happening, uh, the uh, Cheney and uh, the Bush administration got this sense of, hey, we can work with this. And they let it happen. They continue to let it happen. And I think that's what you were seeing there is this kind of dance between uh, the mad mullahs, uh, you know, who are a powerful, evil global force, and the same old military-industrial complex that we know shot Kennedy. So I think there is that going on, and there's plenty of uh, parapolitics there to study and uh, and to try to understand. My problems with uh, the truthers uh, basically them from another kind of manipulation. Like uh, uh, Len Bracken and, and John Judge and I went to, to the hotel that was across from the Pentagon, and we interviewed everybody who worked there. Every one of them saw the plane uh, crash into uh, the Pentagon, and, and there's photos from the Sitco station across the street there that show the American Airlines logo. I mean, it's it's all true. The plane hit the thing, and all these arguments that Hani Hanjua was some kind of acrobatic pilot are just silly. He crashed the plane. He didn't have to take off. He didn't have to land. He crashed the plane. I could do that. But at the same time, every one of those people that worked in that hotel said that the FBI came and confiscated all of the security footage from the hotel. And that's still out there somewhere. I don't even know if there's any uh, FOIPA attempts to try to recover it. So what's that all about, you know? Uh, they say to themselves, well, I, you, you know, maybe maybe we do have some involvement. We better hold on to these tapes. Uh, why don't they release them? I mean, it, it would, would totally devastate that segment of the truther movement that says there is no plane. Totally break it up. Why are they letting that go on? So I think there's manipulation there too. You see, you're talking about that third layer again. Back to that third layer. You know, there's the reality, there's the perception of what happened, and then there's this third thing. I had gotten into a huge argument online. It's funny, Ken. You talked about getting into arguments with people about whether or not a plane hit the uh, Pentagon. There was a piece of footage that exists 
of a plane hitting the second tower that has become somewhat infamous uh, from that day uh, because it was uh, tripod-mounted footage shot from a, from a point of view of a penthouse apartment a block away from the trade centers looking up into the towers. And there was this buzz online on AboveTopSecret.com that uh, uh, that this this footage was impossible, that the f- person that supposedly shot the footage, a one Scott Myers, who these guys were saying, you know, no one's been able to confirm his existence. This looks like it's CGI. And these people are going on and on about this. And, and I get on there and I say, listen, you idiots. Scott Myers is one of my oldest friends. I spent many an hour on that uh, on that exact location, in that exact location from where that footage was shot. That's real footage. And in fact, I am the guy who helped Scott get that footage into the hands of the FBI that day. Because actually, it was about getting the FBI to help Scott out because his wife was laying in bed looking up at these towers. Their bedroom, the window in the bedroom looked up at the towers. She was laying in bed like seven, eight months pregnant with his his daughter. Um, and I got online and said, you know, you guys are going all crazy about this. I can tell you that I can vouch for this footage. I know who the guy is. And what is wrong with you people that you look at something like this and go, this is CGI. And yet you look at the most ridiculous photos and images of obviously really poorly rendered stuff. Or you look at a Billy Meyer photograph and go, this is real. It, it, I keep coming back to people just seem their their filters for perceiving yeah. and, and evaluating reality are just completely shot at this point. I was I was in Liverpool last spring uh, doing a talk, and one of the vendors there was selling something called the Hutchison effect, which supposedly demonstrated that the uh, uh, yes. the whole incident was holograms. Right. That the, the 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 planes didn't hit the tower at all. That it was all just a holographic projection. It's that kind of stuff that drives you nuts. It's it's uh, it's it's like there's a brooder. So a holographic projection brought the buildings down. Yeah, no, that was the, the it was the demolition. The demolition brought the buildings down. You're not uh-huh. getting the mythology right now. Uh, no, well, at this point, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the the point is, I mean, we all I watched that second plane hit that tower live uh, on television that day. Interestingly yeah. enough, I was just watching uh, some the, the the anniversary Today Show footage, and what I saw was actually not included in the footage that continued. But I remember this because I went I, I was with a girlfriend, and I went back to bed and tried to wake her up and tried to tell her what was going on, and she like turns over and says, "Oh, Ken, you and your conspiracy theories." Oh, jeez. Uh, but it's just it is just like uh, in this last round of, of of Kennedy specials because of the anniversary. You know, I always get all this attention in November. They had some guy, uh, and this is a guy who was working with uh, William Manchester's uh, papers at, at Wesleyan, uh, basically saying that uh, Jackie and Johnson both set the time of uh, JFK's death early for various reasons. One, so that he could have gotten the last rites and, and still have his soul saved under Catholic doctrine, and in Johnson's case, so it didn't look like he was so anxious uh, to take the job. Basically, establishing that even in the most simple behaviors, people have a conspiratorial bent. But he's on this special, and there's, and he's talking about you know the shots coming from behind, and they even show there's a Bruder film where the shot comes from that grassy knoll and hits Kennedy in the right front temple, and he falls back left. And even as that's being shown, the guy is saying, and here's that third shot coming from behind, you know, being totally contradicted by what you can see with your eyes. 
And it's that, uh, that, that kind of stuff that is just, uh, uh, it's like people who have actually seen UFOs. You know, they know what they've seen. And, and, and actually, most of them don't go looking for publicity. And you can't tell them differently um, uh, because you, you know what you see, you know. And these attempts to explain it away or, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in many cases, like in the Hutchinson effect, they're just trying to create a little bit of entertainment, some stupid idea that they think they can sell uh, to somebody on a DVD. And, and the whole motivation is just simply uh, the same motivation that, that any fiction author has writing a book. It's, but, it's, know, the, it's the scene from the movie network where uh, Peter Finch character is in the boardroom with, um, I'm spacing on the actor's name, Beatty, Ned Beatty, and Ned Beatty tells him the world, Mr. Beale, is a business. And that's it. This is his, his like they referred to it, the Pat, uh, Patty had called it the corporate cosmology. Uh, you know, it's the, that this yeah. is what the world is, this is what the world has always been. And Actually, believe- I can think of another Ned Beatty role that's uh, more closer to the way the world is. Sweet <laughs> 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 well, like a pig, boy. Well, that and oh, that's that's a little while since I watched that one. Um, yeah, now it it well, this is and and this is why basically there are shows that it, like ours that exist that where. Uh, you know, you, people feel like they just have to be able to turn off the mainstream stuff for a while and actually have a, a conversation and maybe take time, you know, take time to actually hone in on a point of mystery and try to maybe not understand it, but maybe strip away the signal from the noise. You know, what signal can we get out of the noise? Uh, we, we know that they're like, you know, back to conspiracies, even the definition of a conspiracy, where, uh, you know, the minute you have a couple of people figuring out a way to perpetrate a lie, uh, you've got a conspiracy. That's it. So, you know, and, and, and with that definition, uh, conspiracies are happening every day in corporate America and every corporation. A conspiracy is committed in any home office of any corporation at least a couple of times a day. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's just basically that's that's business as usual. Yeah, uh, there is there actually is no non-conspiracy explanation for 9/11. Even if you don't believe there was no there was any US government involvement, it's still a conspiracy of terrorists. We're talking about criminal act there where a group of people get together and they do a horrible thing. Okay. Yeah. But I think the argument now is whether it's a criminal act or an act of war. But that's either way. It's a conspiracy, but it's not some kind of mysterious conspiracy. Yeah, war, war itself is a conspiracy. I mean, there's there's no reason in the world why all the people of the planet can't just you know live uh, productive, creative lives instead of blowing each other up and killing each other. But it's the uh, the leadership, the political leadership, and the military-industrial complex that uh, enriches themselves uh, by you know. Uh, one excuse, one reason, one uh, kind of brainwashing method after another uh, to to keep people in this per- perpetual state, which is you know it's total opposite of common sense and and the natural impulse of most people. Well, it comes down to the question of are humans just excessively violent? And uh, I'm I'm fascinated by ants and ants with their very high level of organization, very high level of efficiency. They're warlike creatures as well. Maybe that's just the nature of reality. We need E.T. to come here and to protect us from ourselves. 
Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day. That's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Kenneth Thomas and Stephen Beiser, and we're here talking about conspiracies. Of course, the other conspiracy theory, this is the one that is sometimes brought back over and over again in our forums, and we have to get rid of it, I think. The one that we didn't land on the moon. Where does that come out of? Now, you know, why did you have to even like, oh, God, why? I think it's necessary. I think we have to just dispense with it. Once let's, and for uh, all. Well, let's ask this question. Do you think there are any secrets in the space program at all? Well, clearly. Okay. You know, so, no, I, I, Gene, I'm only giving you hell because now we've got it. We've got one of our, our guests is going, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> is, is, there, is, there, is there gold on the moon? <laughs> <laughs> there probably is, Stephen. In fact, we're going to send you. Well, it, it, we're going to send you fact, there. If in, if, in fact, we never went to the moon, then we're not sure if there's gold. But no. we seem to be pretty sure that there's water now. Yeah. For some reason, the new gold, water, the yeah, new well, gold. Yeah, I don't know. Well, on on the moon, I would suppose that would be the gold standard, so to speak. Did you? Apropos uh, of, of of this this whole, were we on the moon? I I, I say this in, genuinely in questioning. Why have we not returned in the past almost forty years? Probably financial reasons would be my guess. I mean, with all the Maybe. money that we, with all the money we've wasted doing so many, we've had wars ridiculously. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Only more yeah. recently have we had these wars. I mean, yeah. post Vietnam, we actually took a break on the war front, and we still didn't revisit the moon. Yeah, I mean, what is, what is the thinking? You know, what what is the thinking in the UFO community uh, regarding that? Well, uh, first let me mention there's, a, there's a, an ancillary news story. One of the scientists that actually worked on the, uh, this uh, program that discovered water on the moon was set up by the FBI, uh, posing as Israeli agents who sold them secrets. And, uh, <laughs> it they, sounds they like that scam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you see that happening all the time. I remember when uh, uh, FBI was big, there was a whole series of scientists who, you know, after working for years and accumulating a certain amount of knowledge, all of a sudden it's like this series of mysterious deaths amongst those people. And uh, my own uh, connection to the moon research, uh, although I've got Michael Barra in my new book. My new book is called Secret and Suppressed 2, and Michael Barra's in there, and he's uh, kind of a, a partner to Richard Hoagland. So that whole thing is getting discussed. But in my work, 
what I've demonstrated is that in my book, NASA Nazis JFK, there's a picture of JFK and Werner von Braun standing uh, next to each other. And in von Braun's memoir, he talks about how right after this photograph was taken, they get into an argument specifically about the propulsion systems that we're using to go to the moon. So Werner von Braun, famous rocket scientist, is arguing that we're going to be using rockets. What is JFK arguing for? Uh, we don't know that. And then when you get into some of this evidence about the uh, uh, the lander taking off without a blast or any blast crater, despite you know NASA's uh, own uh, depictions of, of how that should have looked, uh, you begin to wonder, was there some other propulsion system going on? And these days, when a space shuttle goes up, they, many times they don't make any bones about it. They say there are secret payloads. So they are keeping some kind of secret there. Uh, and uh, the idea that we never went to the moon is kind of like the idea that a, uh, that the driver shot Kennedy or that a plane never hit the Pentagon. It's all of these crazy ideas that get introduced into the discussion in order to discredit the whole discussion. So disinformation, basically, and well, now again, back to that third hand. So who's that third hand? You know, who's the hand introducing that and why? This is, in, in talking about the UFO topic, there seems to always be this underlying thought that um, there is some group that is active in promoting disinformation in the UFO field as a way to essentially test disinformation techniques, all right, that basically the UFO field ends up being a useful proving ground for seeing how a disinformation technique will work because, well, it's fringe anyway. Um, there is because it's a certain sort of a, 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 a relatively small number of people, so you can, can have some sort of way to gauge the metrics of the group dynamics in a, in a, in a useful way. Why would that group be interesting to an intelligence operation, for instance? Well, yeah. Why? Because there's, there's a group of citizens who are coming together questioning the uh, mainstream view of what UFOs are all about, actually asking concrete questions about uh, military hardware, you know, being critical of what the military state is, is doing with its black ops money. So you would think that, yes, they have some kind of stake in monitoring those people. I kind of agree with what you say there. And then and this, is, this goes back to... Uh, to Kenneth Arnold, actually, there was a guy in uh, at the Vegas conference trying to make the point that that even in 1947, maybe they just hoaxed up these incidents so that they could see they could gauge the uh, Soviet response because the Soviets would have, you know, their people up in Tacoma or Seattle, and uh, they'd be reporting back to the other people about this story. It's called a barium meal. You know, you, you you plant a story and you're able to trace the blowback. Right. Right. Um, so, when does it? Where does it all lead? Where does it all end? I think it, it, this is where we get into such a frustrating place. Certainly, uh, very often, uh, I know personally on the show, I get to a frustrating place where, I guess, that sort of fatigue that sets in for I think a lot of people with regards to dealing with reality, where it's just like, look, let me just go home, let me uh, eat my meal and watch my TV, and otherwise. Uh, I don't even want to know, man. You know, if it doesn't directly impact me or my bottom line, I don't want to know. And when you have a sort of a situation where really everyday life is at this point in time, it's, you know, we have all these, we have all these creature comforts, at least in the first world, 
you know, third world populations, it's a bit of a different deal. And, and you know, Ken, to get back to something you said before, I just want to go just completely off track for a moment about the pervasiveness of the computer screen as the new television. I have to remind you that there's a huge portion of the world that is still firmly based on the television. Okay, even though we're seeing more and more of um, penetration of computer technology into third world countries, um, there still is. I mean, you go to Venezuela, go to Caracas, and you you see the shanty houses on the sides of the mountains where all the poor people live. The vast majority of people in the country, most of those shanty houses don't don't still don't have computers, but they definitely have TV sets. And they've got either dishes or antennas outside on on the roofs. So you know, let's not discount the that the power of television at this point because it's true. I mean, even the definition of what television is. You know, when you take television content and deliver it streaming to a smartphone, at that point, is the smartphone a television or not? And the answer is, well, yes, it is, but. There's still that role that the television plays, and this is, in the, believe me, in, in the electronics industry, it's always been this huge uh, goal for computer companies to displace the television, to become the new electronic fireplace. And you know, there has there's been a certain amount of uh, success in that crossover-wise, but um, you know, for a lot of the world, the the, the tube. It's still broadcast, you know, what we normally call broadcast television, and and so you know we have to we have to just keep that in mind. I'm fully in agreement, though, that what what has been traditionally thought of as the role of television is being transferred to the computer, and there is an interactive component. That's, yeah, 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 and the kind of technology hardly matters. The position right. that most people find themselves in is, uh, and of course. They are certainly don't have in, in many many parts of the world. They don't have any ability to fight back from the signals that are being beamed into them. You know, the, the, the first stage of that technology is always to create passive reception. Right. But uh, in uh, you know more advanced uh, cultures such as our own, the idea is to to fight back uh, to engage the technology and use it for. Uh, your own benefit. And, I mean, it's always a David and Goliath thing, but my God, think of, uh, uh, I mean, can you even cast your memory back before there was Google Earth? And when Google Earth, an incredible tool like that that everybody has now with all these GPS locators, whatever they have, whatever the Pentagon has, it's advanced many decades uh, beyond that. You know, so we all, we have a lot of incredibly powerful tools now to give us more information than any other time in the past. But, uh, that other force that wants to keep us ignorant and wants to keep us from being able to use that tool is, is bigger. They're the ones with the, the, the satellites that are beaming these signals uh, to the television. They're the ones that are trying to create uh, some, you know, a kind of control reality uh, in contradistinction to the little, you know, the little guy, the teenager with global broadcast power, the cyberpunk, you know, I mean, William Gibson and those guys are really good on this. Well, you know what it is. People are, people have been spoiled on production values. I mean, people want their, they want their lies very meticulously packaged. You know, they want, and, and, and even if they're into their reality TV, they want that reality television uh, encased in a cocoon of very slick, slickly programmed advertising. And and this is something that, that that I've really noticed is that you know people's level of visual literacy now is very high. It's their understanding of that of 
the foundations, the psychological foundations, the technological foundations of that visual literacy that, that most of them are completely lost on. And, you know, we're at a point now where let's bring it back to conspiracy theories because that's what the show is about. Uh, you, you wouldn't, I'm known to be fairly skeptical in my thinking, but you wouldn't have to work too hard to convince me that there is some kind of a grand conspiracy behind just the way, and, you know, you know I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and sound just completely nuts for a change. Not uh, you. Well, no, seriously, no. I thought there was one sane man left on the planet. Not a chance, man. I'm insane at this point. No, well, but just look at the way that children or adults or older people, look at the way they stare at a TV set. You know, there's a a reality of how that that television image is formed. Uh, You know, it used to be a cathode ray tube with a refreshing... Uh, 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 a bunch of electrons hitting a phosphor layer. Now it's LED, uh, LCDs or plasma. So, you know, technology is different. But there's still this refreshed image that's actually, you know, people, and people need to understand this. When they're watching TV, they're watching already a consensual hallucination, basically, because they're watching a bunch of fra- still frames flashing up in very high succession. Um, and their brain is already filling in the information in between the static discrete frames to create this illusion of motion, which is this illusion of a reality, this illusion of a reality that's for, that's so strong that for many people who especially live alone, that becomes a more real reality to them than the reality right outside their door. And I look at that and I think to myself, is that is that in and of itself... That reality that people respond to television that way, is that some great control conspiracy that uh, is so evil we couldn't even imagine it? Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This reality is that we have Kenneth Thomas and Stephen Beiser joining us. Ken, you're champing at the bit. I can hear it. I feel it in the ether, in the 60 hertz of the signal. 
Yeah, this, this, this reality is such as it is. Uh, well, you know, I, I certainly agree with you that, that that's, that's the case too much. But also a lot of these people who are hypnotized by the old cafe ray tubes, what is the reality outside the door? A rural road? A library maybe many hours into the city? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a passing... Uh, Evangelists uh, coming to give them a Bible every once in a while. Uh, You know, even as bad as that matrix reality that you just described is, it's less stark, really, in many ways than a lot of real reality that's out there. B, every year, we have to constantly upgrade these damn computers. I mean, uh, the the car industry really understood the whole thing about built-in obsolescence and kind of discovered it after a while. The computer industry is built on it because every year they have to be faster and they have to do different things. And uh, they can't catch up with the speed of the human brain, you know. But by the time a, a new innovation comes along, we're bored with it, you know, and something else has to happen. So it's a constantly, uh, in, many, in that technology, and again, it's the, the kind of the distinction between the computer technology and the television technology. I think the computer technology can, and I know it sounds very naive and stuff, but uh, it can be a stimulus for brain growth, you know, and it's, it's always been my, the case with me. I get bored with computers very quickly, you know, and once I've discovered a routine or something new about it, it takes me maybe a week before I need something else, something new, you know. I, I, I actually uh, look forward to information flowing faster and in larger chunks. Part of the reason why I'm into parapolitics is because it's just, you can't just, you can't get enough, you know, of reality or information uh, to satisfy your need for it. That's why I call it parapolitics, in fact, because it's, a, a, it's mostly para, that, that, pre, that prefix, means running alongside. So there's some stream of reality that everything is being broadcast, but there's all kinds of stuff running alongside of it. It's not all up on the computer. It certainly never came in, in uh, on the televisions. There's Charles Fort, you know, there's ufology. There's conspiracies, cock-ups, and coincidences, all of which are worthy of trying to figure out tons and tons strata of data that uh, you generally feel you're deprived of. You know what it comes down to? It comes down to branding. This is, a, this is an evil thing because it's a world that, that I've interacted with. It's a world that I've actually at times made money from. Uh, is is working for 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 doing work for companies involved with this thing called branding. If if the masses understood just how carefully things are planned in terms of presentation of something as mundane as the logo of a company, if they understood the amount of time, money, and effort that went into the thought of how to deceive, appeal, control, constrain manage people's perceptions if people if people had a real look at how much human effort goes into the study of fabricating reality and you know, by definition fabricating reality meaning you know the selling of lies uh i think that they would get disheartened i think that they would be in some cases really disgusted to realize just how much effort just how much human time and effort goes into this process of fabricating lies, and and I don't even know what you know what is this cultural anthropology? I mean, what field of study would look at how that would ultimately? <laughs> well, it, but it, it it's brainwashing at a lot of different levels. It's brainwashing that didn't just appear in a vacuum. Look, you know that that branding. If you look at religion, right? Um, you know, it, what are the religions that survived? The ones that had the best branding, basically. 
are the ones that grow, the one that the ones that people adopt. And it's weird because you start to look at how like products are sold. You want to talk about conspiracy theories. Uh, where basically you have mythologies built around products, and those mythologies sell the products. If people buy into the mythology, they buy into a lifestyle. You know, Gene and I are both longtime computer users, but we also would primarily define ourselves as Mac users. We're Macintosh aficionados, and we were won over very early by some combination of what we perceive as superior technology and quite frankly, <laughs> better branding by Apple versus their competitors at the time. <laughs> I'm the, I'm so the you first. You, you well, were yeah, brainwashed then. <laughs> well, by the by the lure by of the a superior brand. <laughs> but now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, and and again, this has maybe always been true, where you have a certain amount of people that are consumers and a certain number of people who are producers. All right. And it really, uh, it, certainly in terms of computer usage, there's this interesting thing that's happened in the industry, not, you know, to turn this into like a technology show, but there certainly is this thing where, um, clearly the ma vast majority of the market for consumer electronics, for computers, are media consumers, not media producers. All right. Most people use their smartphones and their laptops not to make things, but to consume. Yet, at the same time, what the computer really represents is this incredibly powerful symbolic manipulation device that is the most reconfigurable tool you could ever imagine. And you take a computer and different applications, turn the computer into the world's most powerful synthesizer, the world's most powerful paintbrush, the world's most powerful typewriter, um, that once you get a taste of these things, if you're someone who is, you know, even slightly creative, man, you want to talk about brainwashing, <laughs> you know, to fall into computer applications to make things, you know, that's a, that's a really a, such a deep alternate reality um, that it's incredibly easy to get lost in. But yet people are more prone to get lost in virtual realities that are simulations of the consumer world, hence the uh, World of Warcrafts, the Sim Cities, um, the Second Lives, these basically online network spaces where what people are doing is really just socially interacting, except they're doing it in this sort of detached uh, avatar-based system. And so you've got all of this incredible technology that simply people are using to, to just create an alternate reality in, except it's an alternate reality where ultimately they don't have control. And this is something that goes back, uh, and, I, you know, we can take this. This show can go in so many different directions. <laughs> hey, but, we saw Steve with us? <laughs> yeah, we're, we haven't talked about gold. Wait a minute. Well, I was just going to ask Steve, how has the computer technology affected the currency markets? Yeah, okay, cool. You know, you 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 talk about it. Is there not a movie that that's about to be released that's totally computer generated? Is that uh, well, Avatar? There, there have been many Avatars, the latest to Jim Cameron movie, but it's certainly yeah, not. It's not the first movie to be fully computer generated. No, not at all. But from, from what I from what I understand, enormously expensive. Uh, like in hundreds of millions of dollars to produce it. Yeah, a couple to, hundred million bucks, yeah. 
to bring it to market. Okay. Right. And, 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 you know, it, you know, will it recoup that money? Who knows? But apparently, is that the ultimate that that we're not going to need real actors and are we going to not need real real people? Are we just going to computer generate everything? I mean, is that is that is that where we're going? I mean, uh, my know, understanding of Avatar, by the way, is that it is some real actors and then they. No, Basically, no, no. the whole point of Avatar sure. is that instead of computer generating things, what first of all, and this is boy, this is like a whole separate show, right? Um, uh, but what it comes down to, in terms of the performances, the whole point of Avatar is that what Cameron's trying to do is capture very closely and intimately the facial performances of the real actors using them as reference points to do the animation from so that you break through that barrier where, and this has always been the, you know, the, the biggest problem in computer graphics, are believable faces because of the fact that humans are so in tune to reading expressions on other people's faces. I mean, you know, think about television. What are people doing most of the time? Watching someone talk. You think about how we, you know, interact with people in a social context. It's we're looking, at, we're looking at their faces, we're looking at their eyes, we're looking for certain types of feedback. So we're basically very sensitive to very minute details in facial expressions. That the whole point of Avatar as a movie, technologically, um, is that there's going to be more realistic uh, facial expressions and performances on these computer-generated characters because they were directly referencing the real stuff and the fact that on set, the pre-visualization technology allows them to see what would have been previously tediously rendered scenes so that basically the actors couldn't see what they were interacting with, hence the George Lucas effect in the second three movies of the Star Wars Nightmare. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, there's so much irony in that we're going to move the people over so we can have a more human expression, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. we're, 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 you know, we're we're going to simulate that humanness and and bring it to a higher level. It's not cost. <laughs> it's not. It's not cost effective to render human characters. It's a lot cheaper to just point a camera at a person and let them go. And I think well, that Roto, that yeah. that will always be true. Go ahead. Rotoscoping has been around for a long, long time. Actually, they're kind of that kind of thing. Well, now, now rotoscoping and, is and, a but different. But also, there's always thing. been a, a fine tradition uh, or a fine industry of um, animators, cartoon animators in the movie. Sure, that is almost totally disappearing because of these kind of Pixar CGI generated uh, things. I remember uh, in my youth of being totally excited whenever a new Ray Harryhausen movie came out because it had special effects and they were special. There, there's nothing, you know, even though the effects these days are far more realistic and sophisticated than anything Harryhausen ever did, they're in every movie you see and they're just not special anymore. Well, Harryhausen was an animator. He was using well, physical, mostly physical animated. items. Stop not, motion. Uh, yeah, he would move, he would basically take a physical item. And he would move it, and he would take a picture of it, and he'd move it again and take another picture. It's obviously more complicated than that, but basically that was what was all about. The technology they used in the original King Kong, which was done by Willis O'Brien back in the 1930s, that's where he learned his craft. 
based on that technology. Yeah, but the same the same knowledge that makes a good stop motion animator is directly transferable to being a good CG animator. When you go to to interview, certainly this was always true. I don't know about now, but I'm guessing this is still true. If you go to interview for a job as a production person in industrial light and magic, they're not so interested in your computer skills. They want to know if you can draw. Okay? If you can draw, they can they can use they can take you and teach you software that's gonna let you transfer those skills. When you're an animator, the same things the same the same problems that you worry about in creating believable motion uh a single frame at a time for either 12, uh, 24, or 30 frames a second. Um, those same skills that you would do in the analog world of paper are directly transferable to the digital realm. And in fact, that's when you know, when, when, when you see a blending of artistic ability with technical knowledge, that's, that's where you get the Pixars of the world. See, Pixar is a place where, at the end of the day, Yes, that all the Pixar movies are computer generated. This is true. But what I will say about Pixar is that the people who work there, and I know a number of them, and I've been friends with a number of them, they put a lot of, a, a lot of time and effort into understanding things in the analog realm and understanding how something is supposed to work in the real world before attempting to use computer tools to, to try to, you know, either replicate or even enhance that real-world effect. So the computer doesn't do it all, and this has always been the case for any technology. You know, the technology, you know, computers are just another hammer in the hands of a technician or an artist, uh, a craftsperson, someone who's going to do something with the computer, but it's just another tool. It does not automatically make the magic. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have another <laughs> session to spend with Stephen Beiser. And Kenneth Thomas, we're talking about conspiracies and a lot, a lot more. So there we go. Let's kind of maybe take it back before we kind yeah, of we go down technology land. Yeah, yeah we're going to technology land, and if we do that, we should basically maybe take it to the other show, the Tech Night Out Live. But right now, returning to our paranormal conspiratorial realm. I have, I have a quick question for, for Ken. What is the, in your in your opinion, what is the most significant, uh, compelling conspiracy that people are not paying attention to you to that you think they should be? Okay, right now. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been busy. Uh, I've been on tour with uh, 
doing this uh, Maury Island thing, so like, you know, <laughs> the one that I'm involved in actually right now seems to be the most important one to me. But that, you know. That, well, okay, let me rephrase the question for you then. What can we learn from historical conspiracies that will allow us to decipher current experience, current conspiracies in a more productive way? Okay. Um, well, one case that comes to mind is the Valerie Plame thing. The, you know, well, right then, now, this, this business yeah. I was talk, talking to you about before, about this Chrisman, who's the grassy knoll uh, guy. There's a Washington Post reporter who is still suing the CIA over 300-plus documents involving the station chief in Miami who was the head of the anti-Castro Cubans. So that puts us kind of in the heart of what needs to be done. Uh, so, you know, maybe we could start there. Um, then we can move into the Valerie Plame thing, which uh, uh, I think is one of those third force things that you were talking about. If I think okay, you, okay. This yeah. is, of course, the CIA operative that was outed supposedly right. by right. Joe Wilson's or wife. Whatever. Right. Well, okay. Now, hold on, hold on. Now, now, and just let's get right to it, where there was the thing Scott McClelland... When his auto, his little book about working in the Bush uh, administration came out, if I remember correctly, he essentially said that it was Bush that authorized the outing. That basically said, "Oh, I, I did it." Yeah, I mean, McClellan went on record saying that it was Bush that gave the word. Do you know about that, Ken? Yeah, but McClellan was kind of like on Saddam's payroll, wasn't he? I don't know. You was he? I don't know that. Yeah, Tell no, us. that's my understanding. I, and you don't really hear much about the guy anymore either. Wait, wait a minute. Scott McClellan was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of a different guy. Scott McClellan was a former press agent, right? Right, exactly. Right, yeah. His father, uh, Bar McClellan, wrote the LBJ Did It book, right? You know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hmm. Scott McClellan's father is a conspiracy guy who believes that LBJ was behind the Kennedy assassination. He wrote a book called, uh, just like Steve was saying, uh, Blood, Oil, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. I, I think but, actually but, McClellan, if, if I'm not mistaken, McClellan actually laid laid the the outing to uh, Cheney's office and 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 Libby and uh, no, know, no, uh, no 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 no. I'm pretty sure McClellan went uh, in his book. I'm pretty sure I can. I, I remember him showing up on a couple of the talk shows. Right. Saying that yeah. that that in his he said that Bush is the one. Bush said, "Oh yeah, I I, I greenlighted that." Bush. He green he greenlighted Armitage then, right? It was Richard Armitage who did it. It wasn't Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby took the fall. Richard Armitage, who admits to having done it. And the bottom line, though, is that it's a good thing to out CIA agents. Actually, it used to be, it used to be a good thing because the CIA was involved in all kinds of dirty crap. So now we have other we have people who you know, might otherwise be critical of what the CIA is doing, coming to the defense of Valerie Plain. And so that's that third force manipulation, you know. Well, I mean, right now uh, we have so many uh, civilian, quote-unquote civilian, uh, representatives that were CIA, that were military, uh, were formerly military uh uh, spooks, as it were, and uh, all these people are now civilians, and a lot of them are in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan, and they're in the employ of a private company. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't that isn't that kind of a 
a frightening scenario that the, the government has contracted out so much of what was formerly always a, a military and or governmental uh, obligation and, and service, and now it's a privately run service. I mean, isn't that what, what this Blackwater yeah. deal is? That's Blackwater. That's also the famous example in my research is Wackenhut that uh, supplies mm. the private security services that did at, on the uh, uh, Indian Reservation where they developed the Promise software and the man pads shoulder firing uh, things. Uh, it was interesting, when I was in Vegas last, I went to the Atomic Testing Museum, they actually have one of those, and there's a security office there, whack and hut. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, we've got about 10 minutes and we're rambling here. Do we want to start up doing a formal talk of this? or? We've got 10 minutes. What do you think, Gene? You know what, I'd like to see maybe a few comments about government conspiracies involved in the field that we're dealing with a lot on this show, of course, of UFOs. We mentioned course the crazy things about maury island and then you look at other cases well was the roswell incident you know was that possibly something that involved government government participation not in trying to unearth the secrets of et's but maybe a secret weapon of some kind and maybe they just recovered the wreckage but they didn't tell the local authorities in roswell because they didn't have the need to know Okay, we could go there. I, I would, though, like to bring up uh, this uh, lawsuit involving Crisman because Crisman makes that connection between the UFO thing and the JFK thing, and it brings it right to the present, and people actually still trying to pursue documents that might tell us something about both. Sure, go ahead. Okay. In terms of the Roswell thing, uh, uh, one of the supposed signatories of, of MJ-12, um, and I do believe that MJ-12 exists, and, and, and that's, that's another, probably another show. But there is another absolute, problem, probably, too. <laughs> there's, a, there's a triangulation of research there that, that, that demonstrates that MJ-12 existed. What it was and what it did, we're not quite sure. But supposedly one of the signatories of the MJ-12 document, Vannevar Bush, is quite famous amongst people who study hypertext language because he wrote an essay at around the time of the Roswell crash. The Memex. As we may think. Yes. Yeah, the Memex, the infamous the Memex. Memex. The yes, first super, kind of yeah, like a yeah. Rube Goldberg desk, <laughs> microfiche things that basically seems like trying to describe a technology in the terms that, that, that he knew that eventually uh, developed into something like the, the PC. So I've heard the argument made before that actually what we back-engineered from Roswell were the PCs that we use every day. See, but the, of course the problem with that is that uh, the Memex, that, me that, that paper that he wrote, that memo that he wrote describing the Memex, in retrospect, it was, it was visionary, but there's no reason to think that it was inspired by anything other than an extrapolation of what was at, what was at that time this new field of communications where you know you 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 had and and it's hard because in, in, you know if you if you look at this from the point of view of technical history one of the things that you find with all of the claims about reverse engineered technology is that there are fairly well established fairly well known histories linear histories of the development of technologies where there are times when you have people that step in with some very interesting insights, you know, and 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 move things along in a way that is it seems like a kind of nonlinear, 
Nikola Tesla being a great example of that. And then we see how the Tesla story was taken and distorted in so many ways. Yet, if we just look at that, what, what, what is good hard data on Tesla, we know that he was doing stuff that was way beyond what anybody else was thinking about at the time. Um, and, you know, there's this idea that, oh, Tesla somehow was in communication with the aliens who were sending him the information. You know, he that's where. Himself, didn't he? I don't. I, I read his autobiography. I didn't read that anywhere in his autobiography. I got to tell you. I mean, I don't think well, it's in there. I'm an expert on Tesla, but I tell you what, I am an expert on Wilhelm Reich, and Reich did indeed take his combustor guns off the Arizona desert to fight UFOs. Uh, the technology that that he developed, and very specifically, he also went through Roswell in like 1955. And this is one of these things. You know, you get skeptics out there that saying that that you know the Roswell thing happened, and then it was totally dropped until Stan Friedman and his crowd came along in the 80s to try to make a big deal out of it to sell some UFO books. But here you have in 1955, you have Wilhelm Reich not only going through Roswell but discussing uh, the kind of alien conditions and alien vibes that he's that he's picking up. So. I don't know if that directly relates to what you were saying about uh, uh, the history of technology as it's received. Um, of course, anything can be, uh, uh, you know, you could say that anything is just, um, history is a lie, in other words. I think there's a book like that. And anything could be made to look like something other than what it is. I don't actually really deal, you know, you got people who think that Kennedy was shot because he was going to reveal the secret of Oswell. Right. I don't believe that. But the whole point of my recent lectures has, has been that there is a very serious connection between the UFO world and the JFK world. And that's this Fred Crisman guy who was, who witnessed a UFO three days before Kenneth Arnold. And it was Arnold that began the whole post-1947 uh, wave. And Chrisman was subpoenaed in 1968 by Jim Garrison as the grassy Knoll shooter, a guy who was uh, mixed up with anti-Castro Cubans, and you know that's Oswald was mixed up with that. Oswald, who served at the uh, at Sugi base in Japan, where the U-2s flew out of, who defected to the Soviet Union and gave them the U-2 information that they used to shoot down Gary Powers, who worked at a film firm that processed U-2 film, a spy. And basically connected to the U-2 project, and the U-2 was created at Area 51. Fred Crisman in that same group, along with Guy Bannister, the anti-Castro Cubans, and presently there's still a lawsuit, an outstanding lawsuit by this guy named Morley, who's a Washington, former Washington Post reporter, still has a FOIA pursuit against the CIA, which now still says, officially says, that there are 300-plus documents involving the assassination, specifically the anti-Castro Cubans that Crisman was a part of, these still pose a grave threat to national security. So, you know, even after all these years, even after the Stone movie came out and that led to the Assassination Materials Review Board, led to the release of all kinds of documents that weren't supposed to be released until 2039, there's still a store of documents that CIA is protecting because revealing them supposedly represents a grave threat. And that those documents will no doubt include something about Krizman, who was a UFO character. Not only in 1947, he in, when he was uh, being investigated by Garrison, he was doing the circuit, the talk show circuit. He was like one of these UFO celebrities. He, he insisted, in fact, that that TV show called The Invaders with Roy Finnis was based on his life. And uh, you, you can see this kind of ongoing connection. It's very clear in history uh, that people, you know, that the same people that are running the Kennedy assassination are keeping their spies in the UFO world. So that's a real concrete thing, and it's something that people need to study and kind of get away from this 
a false dialogue of, you know, was the Roswell crash really aliens or did it really happen at all? Well, that separates, of course, what we would consider a real mystery here about UFOs, but it also means there's a lot of government involvement over the years and possibly the government just got involved in this because they had their own agendas. I tend to think that some abductions, and I've indicated the Barney and Betty Hill case is one of those examples, may have been some kind of government mind control experiments, not as if they were not above doing something like that. You know, we didn't get into this. We were going to talk about Fort Hood, and uh, that would lead us into a mind control discussion. Unfortunately, that's another show. I think we've got about a minute left. But, yeah, the, the, the Fort Hood guy supposedly was trained at the same place where the Virginia Tech shooter came from. And uh, you have this long history of, of mind control that kind of, yeah, interacts with various UFO scenarios, Betty and Barney Hill being one of them, but many others, you know. But we're kind of out of time. I think we have a couple of minutes here. I wanted to ask you quickly uh-huh. before you leave, Ken. What projects are you currently working on? Where can our listeners learn more about the things that you do? Well, steamtravelpress.com is is one place to go, uh, although I, I'm not as good about updating it as everybody else is. The book that I have out now called Secret and Suppressed 2, Banned Ideas and Hidden History into the 21st Century, is, a, is an anthology of different kinds of writings that uh, about various aspects of parapolitics. My own contribution to that is actually not only the Wilhelm Reich story, but the story of Eisenhower's possible meeting with aliens and his possible meetings with Wilhelm Reich. So that's the current thing that's out there. I am working on a new edition of the Maury Island book. My book on Maury Island came out like 10 years ago. And you can't, if you go up on Amazon, you can't buy it for less than $180 now. And uh, I've got a lot of new research and stuff I'm going to add, so uh, Feral House is going to come out with that next year. Other than that, I've been studying POD publishing because this gets back to nobody's reading printed word anymore. Uh, mm. Newspapers, magazines, books, they're all passe. Uh, so I'm thinking about reviving a magazine uh, on print on demand and doing a couple of books that way. So, and, and I'm out to, you know, doing the talk, doing lectures. and uh, Keep you busy. Well, certainly yeah. Fort Hood and other things like that sounds like something that maybe we want to talk further, especially if there's any indication of mind control. Can we control your mind, Stephen? Absolutely. Okay, what That's have you right. learned from this episode? Well, I, I suppose that uh, we, we we wandered uh, far afield, uh, but we came back to the huddle, and uh, it seems reasonable to me that uh, there, there's a lot of interconnection in a variety of disciplines, and, and I'm supposing that uh, within that conspiratorial framework, there are many, many tentacles that we haven't even touched on, and in my mind, uh, a lot of it really is about uh, following the money, and understanding that you know uh, much of much of our history uh, as far back as you want to go has revolved around the state of money and how the money is distributed and and where the money is and you know this whole thing that we just briefly touched upon in here regarding Blackwater or regarding any of the current wars or the space program. All of it is tied to money. And in examining how that distribution works, I think that um, a lot of answers to a lot of what 
is perplexing most of us uh, is somewhere in that in that whole financial work that we just generally call money and and that's why uh, really looking at precious metals and looking at store of value and looking at what values are a lot of it does unfortunately or for better or for worse does revert back to a basis in in metals and gold has been uh, money for as long as there's been human history i'll tell you uh, what that kind of wraps it up Stephen. of course it's all about money and power i guess and Stephen, you can reach him at goldbug.com that's with two g's goldbug.com Stephen beiser ken thomas thank you both for joining us this week on the paracast thank you thank you gene thank you david and ken The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.